What a wonderful promise in that song. Thank you all so much for sharing your gifts with us this morning. Well, hello, everybody, and happy Sunday. I'm so glad you chose to join us this morning to worship our God in spirit and truth. And if you've not noticed, our wonderful democracy is not doing all that great, is it? Uh, and because of that, we desperately need the gospel more than ever. And never have fewer people been willing to share. In just about every poll that's gone out over the past two decades, it's showing this steady decline. And I don't need to pull all those numbers in front of you again, but with every successive generation, fewer and fewer people in America are identifying as being a Christian. And this goes uh, from Generation X, which would be uh, my generation, and later on, more and more Americans are saying that they are atheists, agnostics, religiously unaffiliated, or believe nothing in particular. And you've probably seen it in your own life, and you're, you've seen it uh, in the world that fewer and fewer people are attending church, and probably you don't attend as much as your parents did or your grandparents did. It's just a trend and way things tend to be going right now. And that means that we should be talking more to our neighbors, our colleagues, our family, and our friends about Christ. But a study was done. This was actually done by the Lutheran Hour Ministries that found out this, that, let me go back here. Not that far. Anyway, I'll just read it to you. That in 1993, the number of Christians who said, I believe every Christian has a responsibility to share their faith, and the number who said they would speak to others about the benefits of becoming a Christian has dropped what they call precipitously. And that comes from a Barna report in a book called Spiritual Conversations in the Digital Age. So at a moment when there's more need for evangelism, sharing the good news about Christ, there is less of a willingness to do that. Now, why is that? This is, this is very interesting. There was, a there was an article that appeared in a publication called Gospel in Life that suggested that there's three main reasons why people are more reluctant now than ever to share their faith. First of all, because it's become more complicated. It's become more complicated. We're living in an age where people don't even necessarily believe that truth exists. And not only that, because people are less and less church than they ever have been in America, you have to have a totally different starting place if you're going to share the gospel with someone. People don't have a concept of who Jesus is. It used to be that there was a, a strong sense of a moral reality, a basic knowledge of what was right and what was wrong, and that truth existed and there was a God and there was an afterlife, but that seems not to be the case anymore. Nothing can be assumed when you approach someone with the gospel. So it's become more complicated. And there's things you must talk about before you even get to this gift of salvation. And then, secondly, it's more difficult. It's more difficult to talk about the Christian faith. Because people may or may not see religion even as a good thing. And they lump Christianity right in with that. 
or they have misconceptions even about what Christianity is. They may, in their mind, mainly associate the church with, with slavery or politics. Not to mention all the prominent church leaders that they've witnessed fall in the past 30 to 40 years in really public ways. And then finally, and this is, this is where it gets even more interesting, it's more offensive. It's more offensive. This one may be the hardest. And younger adults are getting pummeled with this message time and time again that no one has the right to tell others what to believe, so you should not be trying to convert anyone. There's a cultural sense of morality that is working against, especially the younger generations who are being told, what right do you have to come along to someone and tell them that there is a quote-unquote right way? Now, interestingly, this statement is doing that very thing. It's making an, an assertion, not to mention the fact that the more these studies have shown, this actually just came out in a book, that the more we use social media, the less able we are to sit down and have a conversation with somebody that believes something differently than us. That leads me to this question. This is what I want to talk about this morning. But why should I share the gospel? Why should I share the gospel? According to the passage we're about to read, there is a great harvest out there that is just waiting. There is low-hanging fruit that is eager to be plucked. Why then should we go into the field and do that work? The passage I want to look at this morning comes from John chapter 4. We're going to start with verse 27 of John chapter 4. Last week we talked about this woman by a well that Jesus had met with. And she gets what Christ called was living water. And now we're going to see the result of that seed being sown in the heart of this Samaritan woman that Jesus met by a well. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. John chapter 4, starting with verse 27. John 4, 27, read through verse 42. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. 
and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. You may be seated. What we need in our world more than anything else is a living hope. When all else fails, when other things aren't going to measure up, when we are given even what we love the most and we think we're going to be deeply satisfied, you're going to find yourself wanting. And what Christ came to give us was living hope. As a matter of fact, when John wrote this gospel, he included the purpose of it. In John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he said, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. You may have life in his name. And this morning I want to approach our topic this way. I want to answer three questions. First of all, what does the gospel bring? Why do we share the gospel? And then what happens when the gospel is shared? In the passage we just read, not only do we see the message go out, but we see the fruit that comes from it almost immediately. So let me jump in now on this first point. What does the gospel bring? And last week we saw that Jesus was willing to press through all of the cultural barriers to speak to this woman, this Samaritan woman, by the well. The, culturally, the Jews couldn't stand the Samaritans. They called them half-breeds. They'd interbred with people through the centuries. And they were no longer just Jewish. They had become uh, intermarried with a number of quote-unquote pagans that an Assyrian nation was exiling uh, them uh, there in the northern kingdom of Israel back in uh, the 7th century B.C. And after years of intermarrying and years of uh, involving themselves in pagan worship, they'd become people that the Jews absolutely despised. But that didn't stop Jesus. Not only was she a Samaritan... A non-Jew, she was a sexual sinner, married five times, living with the sixth man. And how would these disciples then respond to come and see Jesus talking with this woman? So let's look at that reaction. When they came back, it's, this text says they were shocked. See, the rabbis, ever since those disciples had been little boys, the rabbis had taught them certain things about theological education that they'd received. They were taught that instruction in the law was for men alone. And teaching girls, the rabbis taught them, was a waste of time. Not just a waste of time, but was profaning things that were profound. Sacred things that they shouldn't be hearing. But what does Jesus do? He could care less what these people think. He completely disregards that unbiblical cultural norm that had been placed. And he jumps into a conversation about matters of the utmost spiritual importance. But the disciples were shocked, but notice they were smart enough to shut up. Thank goodness. They knew not to question. At least they were learning something at this point about Jesus. 
Okay, he seems to know what he's doing. This is shocking, but you know what? Guys, just shut up. Don't say anything. I mean, the text even points out that they didn't say anything and probably how hard that was for them. But they were smart enough to shut up. And what did the woman do? The text says she, she ran off. We see it there in verses 28 to 30. The woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. See, she left that water pot behind. Why? It was the whole reason she'd come to the well to begin with. But see, this is the excitement that the gospel brought to her. She came to the well at that time because she was judged by other women, scorned because of this lifestyle that she had led. But she's got a message she can't keep to herself. And you know what this woman is? You know what she's experiencing now that she's not experienced? Freedom. She is completely free. She isn't shackled by a past that perhaps she's been ashamed of. And she's free to now really love a man instead of using men and being used by men trying to find out something that doesn't exist. She's got freedom from her past. She's got excitement about the present. Now she's got a purpose. Now she's got something to say. She's got a message that the world needs to hear. And she's got a future. Not just an earthly future, but an eternal future. She's got things to look forward to. Now, the next time you're in a situation where fear is keeping you silent about your faith, I want you to look at this picture. Because she's had absolutely goose egg training. Nothing. She's not trained. She's not concerned about what people might think. She's not concerned about whether people believe her and if they don't believe her. She's not concerned about her past. She's not concerned about her place in the community. She doesn't care that she's not a prominent person because she had an encounter with God himself. And that was worth talking about. What does she say to the people in her community? One of the shortest evangelistic messages. Come and see. It's a theme throughout the book of John. Come and see. So the gospel brought freedom from her past. It brought excitement about the present. She's got an eternity to look forward to. But the question then comes to us, so why do we share the gospel? Why then do we share it? And I know what you're thinking, well, duh, Chad, we kind of just see the right. We saw the reason there, didn't we? Well, just hang on a second. Just, just hang on a second, because I don't think you have the whole picture. We don't get the whole picture until we get into this next section. So the disciples, they're returning from getting food. They'd gone away. They left Jesus alone. They came back. He's talking to a woman. They're probably thinking, oh, we can't leave this guy alone for five minutes. He's breaking all the, breaking all the rules, but they knew enough to shut up. And then they try to get Jesus to eat. Rabbi, eat something. And we get to verse 32. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. Now, what are they thinking? Well, I wish he told us. We wouldn't have run out and tried to get something. You know, get him a, a gyro or something. We thought you were hungry. 
Did somebody bring you something? But see what Jesus is doing. He's employing a similar strategy that he's been using all along. You saw it with Nicodemus. He confounded Nicodemus saying, you had to be born from above. Nicodemus thought, you got to be born again. We can't crawl back into your mother's womb. He came to this woman at the well and said, well, what you need is living water. She was too embarrassed to even ask, well, what is living water? I just, she thought he was just kind of messing with her. Now he says to these disciples, I've got food that you don't even know about. But they're missing it. Jesus goes on and explains in verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He's talking about the mission that the Father had given him, is giving him something that is more satisfying and more sustaining than even physical food itself. As a matter of fact, at one point he'll say, man can't exist on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus is saying that he's been given work to do, and the mission of Christ is to see the, the work done to completion. He knows the Father has given his a mission, and he's got to see it to completion. His final prayer, Jesus will say, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And then what does he say on the cross? It is finished. Now, what was he talking about? He wasn't talking about his life. He's making this proclamation about this climactic moment where he did and completed the mission that the Father had given him to do. And even in that agony, even in the pain, it didn't take away from the joy and the satisfaction of living out and completing the mission that his Father had given him to do. He's expressing the gratification of this life of obedience. He then proceeds to explain to the disciples that they will experience the joy of a soul harvest. He said the fields are white. If you look at a mature wheat field, many of you probably know this better than me, it's, it's whitish in appearance. It's got a white look to it. They're ready, and when the fields turn this color, it's when it means it's harvest time. Typically, it would take about four months, Jesus says, but he's, he's talking about a different kind of harvest. And the harvest that Jesus is talking about doesn't take four months to mature. As a matter of fact, it takes just about as long as I ever took that Samaritan woman to run to that town, talk to those people who are going to come running out to him. Then Jesus turns his attention to the reaper of the harvest. He says in verse 36, he said, Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. There's two jobs here. There's the sowing job and there's the reaping job. In verse 38, he's going to tell these disciples, you're going to reap something for which you did not even labor. You're going to go out and you're going to reap a harvest, but you didn't sow any of the seeds. You're going to earn reward for something and you've only done half the work if at all. These disciples are going to receive rewards simply for co-laboring with Jesus Christ. This is what we get when we co-labor with Christ in the work of the gospel. We get reward. We get eternal reward that we frankly don't even fully understand. <clears throat> and what 
What role are we going to play? Jesus sowed the seed of the gospel in the woman. She went out and told the community, these Samaritans, and these guys are going to get to bring in the harvest. See, we get to participate in the work the Lord gives us. Now, he doesn't need us, but all through the Bible, men get to participate. Women get to participate in the work of God. You see it all through the Old Testament. Now you see it in the New Testament. This is the way in which God intends his work to be done, and we get to do it with him. What's it like to work with God? Well, this is where you find meaning and purpose in life. Kind of reminds me of a story this past week. I heard about, I was reminded of it, but that back in, back in 1990, uh, Michael Jordan, if you, if you watched Jordan back at the peak of his career, it was amazing. You know, these new guys, they're okay. But Michael Jordan was something special. And he scored 69 points in a single game. In that same game, he had a, a teammate named Stacy King, who was a rookie. And in that game, Stacy King got in, shot a free throw, and he scored one point. Well, after the game, the reporters are all gathered around Michael Jordan talking about this game. He scored 69 points, it was unbelievable. But this guy, Stacy King, he managed to worm his way into the interview. He popped in, <clears throat> and he had a zinger. He told the reporters, he said, I'll always remember this as the night that Michael Jordan and I scored a combined 70 points. <laughs> See, that's what it's like. We get to come in, we get to sow, we get to reap, and God does all the growing. God is doing the work. Jesus, he sows a seed in this woman and and see, this is also how we get to experience the gospel daily. You know, the gospel is not sort of this one-and-done deal. Okay, well, I heard it, I believed it. All right, I'll show up at church every now and again, maybe learn something here and there. That's not how the gospel works. We daily experience the forgiveness of Christ. We daily enjoy a walk with God, and this is all because of the gospel. It gives us our identity that is so important to remember. I think that there was a man, his name's A.N. Wilson. He, he got this in a, in a brilliant sort of way. This was the man who was slated to be the next C.S. Lewis. But then as a young man, he walked away from the faith. He, he lost all belief. He publicly repudiated his Christian faith. He became an, an atheist. He embraced a harsh, cynical, uh, critical attitude towards Christianity and any kind of faith in God at all. As a matter of fact, he even uh, wrote a book claiming that Jesus was a failed messianic prophet. But then on an Easter morning, he heard the gospel message, and it was like everything was new again. He said that when I took part of the procession last Sunday and heard the gospel being chanted, I assented to it with complete simplicity. My own return to faith has surprised no one more than myself. Then he goes on to explain the power of the gospel on a daily basis. He says this. He said materialist atheism says that we're just a collection of chemicals. It has no answer whatsoever to the question of how we should be capable of love or heroism 
or poetry, if we are simply animated pieces of meat. But then he says the resurrection, which proclaims that matter and spirit are mysteriously conjoined. That's what we see in the resurrection, the, the reunion of Christ's immaterial self with his material body raised to new life. He said that is the ultimate key to who we are. It confronts us with an extraordinarily haunting story. Johann Sebastian Bach believed the story and set it to music. Most of the greatest writers and thinkers of the past 1,500 years have believed it. But an even stronger argument is the way that Christian faith transforms individual lives. The lives of the men and women with whom you mingle on a daily basis, the man, woman, or child next to you in church on a Sunday morning. No matter how miserable your life might get, he's saying, look, look at that alternative, that you are some kind of just combination of chemicals and an animated pieces of meat. Now, how many people walking around Sheridan are living in a way as if that was true? But that's not who you are as a Christian. You're a child of the king of the universe. And with that king, you get to co-labor. And being part of the gospel message is a key purpose in your life and mine. And then what happens? What happens when the gospel faith is, is shared? We're going to see it with these Samaritans. And notice what it says in verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. She said, he told me all that I ever did. Now again, untrained, only able to speak to what she knew. And guess what? That was enough. And the Samaritans came to Christ. And they were able to see him for themselves. And then look at verses 41 and 42, and many more believed because of his word. They came to Christ. Then they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is what happens. We make Christ known. We play whatever role in the process of coming, someone coming to salvation that we play. We may be the sower. We may be the reaper. But we do it. We don't let things stop us. Satan will love to use fear to make you think you can't do it. You're not smart enough. That person's going to bring up arguments that you can't begin to wage war against. Don't believe it. I want to make... Um, a few closing applications here uh, in regard to this text and, and sharing the gospel. Uh, for three things that come up, and first of all, it's to be sensitive. Be sensitive. What am I being sensitive about? Be sensitive to the fact that you too at one time were an unsaved sinner. When you walk down Main Street, when you're in Albertsons, when you're in Walmart, and, and you're surrounded by people who don't know Christ, remember, that was you. That was you. And we're all undeserving sinners. The only difference between the people around us who are unsaved and us is the grace of God. 
That's it. Accepting that gift of forgiveness, and that should bring humility. Now, notice it doesn't say that this woman ran out and broke up with that man that she'd been living with. She didn't wait till her life was all cleaned up and perfect before she shared this message. No, that's not what she did at all. She just went and she shared it. She wasn't perfect. We're not going to be perfect until we leave this world and get a new body. We're all grappling with sin. But you know what we can be confident in? We can be confident that God sees us as totally forgiven. And we live in a forgiven state. So be sensitive. Be humble. And then secondly, be courageous. Be courageous. Most of us think that, well, I need more training before I can go out and share the gospel. I just, I just don't know enough. Yes, you do. And I hope this passage proves it to you. You know plenty. Just in the course of this 30 minutes, you're getting way more than this lady had. Way more. I can remember my last church uh, working with, with a group of older people, and all of them said the same thing. Chad, we need more training. I thought, you know what? You don't need more training. What we all need is just courageous motivation to do it. The gospel message is extremely simple. Jesus came to earth. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. The Son of God came down. He took the sin on himself. He paid the penalty of that sin through his death on the cross. Satisfying the wrath of God, he was raised from the dead. And by trusting in that message, that's how you have eternal life. This is simple. It's not hard at all. We just need courage. We need courage. That woman from Samaria, completely untrained, but she knew she was forgiven. Jesus knew all her failures, and she knew he still loves me. God knows all our failures, and he still loves us. And these Samaritans came to faith, and then finally be passionate. Be passionate. Now, I'm not saying jump up and down and go nuts, okay? That's not what I mean. But there's a difference between being passionate and being completely indifferent. And if we're completely indifferent, probably we're missing something. If you're completely indifferent about what Christ did, I'm going to say that you're probably not meditating on the message enough. And it's not impacting you on a daily basis. And you're not being imaginative in how Christ paid for your sins and what that means for, your, for you now and who you are now and that your past is gone and it's not going to be held against you. That makes you completely perfect in the eyes of God, even though you're still sinning. We are sinning saints. I love this story about a last conversation a man, Os Guinness, had with uh, uh, a man by the name of John Stott. He's written some wonderful books. He was, a, he was an English, he was a Bible teacher, evangelist. Um, he was a global leader. He was a friend to a lot of people. And he talked about, uh, Oskinus talked about his very last conversation with this man, lying on his deathbed. He was going to die just a couple of weeks later. He was on his back, barely able to speak, and he had a hoarse whisper. Oskinus said, how do you want me to pray for you? And his last words were this, 
pray that I will be faithful to Jesus until my last breath. See, that's, that's a passion. Be faithful to Jesus to your last breath. Don't be afraid to share his message. Don't let the pressures of this culture talk you out of what you know is true. Please pray with me. Lord, I pray that this would be the passion of us, of my generation, of those generations before me, Lord, and those generations that come after me. God, there is a harvest out there that is ready for the reaping. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength and the courage to have a conversation. Lord, it's not easy, but God, we have absolutely nothing to lose and everything to gain. Lord, I pray that an unbelieving Sheridan, Wyoming would hear your word through the mouths of the people sitting in this auditorium right now. God, I pray that every person here would think of one person they need to share the gospel with. And they would have that conversation. And that they would, that there would be an open door, Lord. Jesus, you didn't let anything stop you. And you were unconcerned with the cost. I pray that same attitude would be in us. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. I do want to share something with you uh, quickly before we leave today. First of all, uh, we are going to be having a prayer meeting here on Tuesday evening at 6.30. We'd love it if everybody could come out. We've got a ton of things to pray for in our world. And next Sunday, we are going to have a going away reception for Ken and Beth Doolin. Now, I'm not real happy about them leaving. You pray about that as you feel led to pray about that. But uh, we want to give them a good send-off. They'll be here a week or two after that. But next Sunday between the services, uh, we'll be having a reception just right out here in the foyer where you can say your goodbyes to them. If there's anything that you would like prayer for, feel free to join me at the front of the auditorium. I'd love to pray with you. Otherwise, have a wonderful week, and we'll see you soon.